0: Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel of John. I pray that you would help us to see Jesus more clearly this morning. To believe on him that we would have eternal life. That's that's why you've given us this book. That's why you've given us your word. I believe that's what you desire to accomplish in us especially as we gather this morning. So I pray that you would do that by your Spirit, for your glory, and for our good. We pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen. So I want to orient us a little bit to where we are in the Gospel of John. Evidently, some time has passed since where we ended last week. If you remember, at the end of chapter 5, Jesus was in Jerusalem. So we had, you remember, he healed the man at the pool of Bethesda. And he did it on the Sabbath, and that kind of stirred up a kerfluffle with all the the Pharisees there. And uh, and so then he's doing some teaching, but all of that is happening in Jerusalem. Now we are up in Galilee. So this is like the Jerusalem is down in the south part of Judea, Galilee is up in the north. And we also see that Jesus has been apparently doing some signs, doing some miracles, healing people in in Galilee. So. Uh, John doesn't record that, but there, some period of time has passed from where we ended in chapter 5 and where we're starting now and picking up in chapter 6. John tells us also that this is the time of the Passover. The exact significance of this isn't totally clear, except John likes to reference the feasts and festivals of the Jews to kind of orient people around, uh, orient his readers around time. It's also significant because the Passover, especially at the time of Jesus, was a it was a celebration of Israel's kind of national heritage and identity. It was kind of like the Fourth of July on steroids. And so, what's significant about that is that it's, it's likely contributing to this kind of rising fervor, nationalistic fervor that we see in the end of verse 15, where the people are kind of, there's this kind of hysteria growing where they want to take Jesus and, and by force and make him their king. The fact that this is the Passover and it's the, the celebration of Israel's national identity, which also kind of heightened their sensitivity about the Roman occupation, all of that is, is contributing here to what we see unfolding. We also know, because it's the, with the reference to the Passover, that we are effectively, essentially, one year before Jesus' crucifixion. Because he will come in John 12, he will return to Jerusalem at the time of the Passover and the triumphal entry that will lead to his crucifixion. Now, this is the only miracle, the story that we're going to look at this morning, the feeding of the 5,000, is the only miracle that's recorded except for the resurrection in all four of the Gospels. And that's significant because it means that this was something that all of the gospel writers felt like had some unique significance in the the ministry of Jesus. And in John, this story sets up a very significant discourse that will unfold over the rest of of chapter 6. And it will escalate in intensity, coming to a culmination, a climax in verse 66 where we see that all of his disciples essentially turn away and leave him, except for the twelve. So we start chapter 6 with a huge crowd, probably ten or 15,000 people. We end chapter 6 with the twelve. At the center of this unfolding drama is a discussion about food. That's what I'm talking about. We all love food. The question is what kind of food truly satisfies us and where do we get it? I read a story uh, recently about the world's most extreme foodies. Many, You probably know the term foodie, right? Someone who's like really into finding the best food, the best restaurants. And the story was about four people who would, I think, consider themselves friends And they live all over the world, some in Canada, in in the U.S., in Europe, in Asia. But they regularly meet up all over the globe to kind of engage in these extreme food excursions. Among the four, two of them were the first and second people ever to eat at all of the top 50 restaurants in the world In the span of one year. So every year there's a list. I don't know who puts it out. But someone puts out a list of the the 50 best restaurants in the world. And these two people were the first and second person to ever eat in all 50 within the scope of one year. And then they did it several years uh, in a row after that. One of them has eaten at every single one of the Michelin, three star Michelin restaurants in the world. There's about 135 of them right now. If you know anything about fine dining, Michelin star is like the most elite uh, ranking that a restaurant can get, and three Michelin stars is the top of the top, and this guy has eaten at every single one of them, and anytime a new one comes out, he, he goes and eats there. The fourth, generally, on average, every year, eats at somewhere between 500 and 600 restaurants. So you do the math, 365 days a year, the, she's eating at more than almost two, an average of two fine, high elite restaurants a year. Many of the meals that they have are, you know, $300, $400, $500 a person. And they will eat at, and they'll, they'll eat at one of those meals for lunch, another one for dinner, another one for lunch the next day, another one for dinner the next day. What they have in common is literally an insatiable need for more and better food. And they will do anything and pay anything to get it. People will do almost anything to get what they think will truly satisfy them. Which brings us to this large group of people that has followed Jesus into the wilderness. We we hear and we see in some of the other gospel accounts. This is a desolate place, and they are clearly desperate for something. They're and they think that Jesus can give it to them. I say that they're desperate because we know from the other gospel accounts that they've left their homes in the surrounding villages. They, either they left so quickly or they've been gone so long following after Jesus that they've run out of food. They don't have any more food to eat. And we see also their desperation in the way that they respond at the end. There's this hysteria growing that they're going to take Jesus no matter what. They're going to do whatever it takes to get hold of Jesus and make him their king. And in the midst of this charged and complex situation, Jesus performs a very significant but somewhat perplexing miracle. Now, there are a number of ways that we could approach this passage, but this morning I want to look through the lens of the four or the three main characters that Jesus inter- interacts with, or the three groups of characters that Jesus interacts with the disciples, the boy, and the crowd. So let's look first at the disciples. We see this in uh, verses five through eight. Now, I don't know why Philip drew the short straw on this particular day. We don't hear a lot from Philip, but you kind of feel bad for the guy. Like, when Jesus puts you on the spot like this, you know it's not going to probably go well for you. And you can almost hear the smirk in Jesus' voice, right? Like, as he turns to Philip, bro, where are we going to buy food for all these people to eat? And I love the question because he didn't even just ask, he didn't ask a general question like, how are we going to feed all these people? He asked, where are we going to buy food for all these people to eat? So so Philip's logical thought process is, I don't know, where are we going to buy it? And he comes off as kind of a dope, right? I don't know, Jesus, what are we going to (laughs) do? I don't have six months wages clanking around in my pocket to go buy food. And even if I did, it wouldn't really feed everyone. The reality is Philip responds the way that all of us, any of us, would have responded looking at the situation through the lens of our natural constraints and limitations. And that's exactly the point. Jesus wants to lovingly help Philip and his disciples and I think through this passage help us to stop looking at our circumstances through the lens of our own limitations and constraints and start looking through the, at them through the lens of faith in his power and provision. What he wants them to see is that God, is never, God never leads us or directs us to a place or calls us to do something that he doesn't provide the means to accomplish. If you want the bumper sticker version, where God guides, he provides. Now that, can, that, that sounds like a cliche and it can be used as a cliche. But the reality is when you look through the Bible, every single great hero of the faith, every great Bible story that we read in Sunday school and we celebrate follows the same pattern and, and communicates the same essential truth. Just look through your Bible or read through Hebrews 11. That's kind of the Cliff Notes version. Noah, Abraham, Moses, Joshua, David, Daniel, Mary, Paul, and countless others. What's remarkable about these people and their stories is not their abilities, right? What's remarkable is the fact that God calls them to do something that's way beyond anything they could accomplish in their natural abilities, And they respond in faith, not because they see how it's all going to work out, but because they believe that God is trustworthy. And what happens? God shows up every time. And he does far more than they could ever have imagined. Friends, one of the defining characteristics of a life lived by faith is that we are willing to step into situations that if God doesn't show up, we're in trouble. That's hard for us, right? How often do we live like that? We look at people like Ben and Jay. We heard from them last week. We look at Jesse and Monica Goins. People who are taking radical steps, making radical decisions to to follow Jesus into places that are difficult, that there's a lot of uncertainty that are way beyond their natural ability to control the outcome. And I think that we, if we're honest, we admire them, but we don't want to be them. We want to have all the numbers in order. We want to have a cushion to fall back on. We want to be able to control the situation, the circumstances in our own strength. But the reality, friends... If our faith in Christ never pushes us beyond what we can accomplish in our own strength, I think we have to ask the question whether we're really living by faith. What's also significant, when you talk to Ben and Jay, when you talk to Jesse and Monica, they have some stories to tell of God's provision. They have stories of how God has provided and led them and shown up in powerful and miraculous ways, ways that we don't even sometimes believe are possible, let alone experience in our day-to-day lives. Like the disciples in this story, I think through this passage, God is inviting us to step out of the constraints of what we can do and into the place in faith of what he can do. Let's look at the boy. We don't have a lot of details about the boy. He only shows up in the Gospel of John. But I think because John chooses to include this detail, I think it's significant. We know from the details that John gives that the boy is likely very poor. The barley loaves which John referenced, and again, that's another that that detail is only in John's gospel. These barley loaves were very meager, poor food. They're like little kind of dry cakes. And the fish are most likely like sardines. Some sort of kind of dried, smoked fish that they just smeared onto the barley cakes to give it a little bit of substance and flavor. Whatever you envision when you think of the five loaves and two fish is most likely much less than that. But what I think is significant about this is that Jesus chooses to use this poor boy and his humble offering to demonstrate his immense power. He doesn't need the boy. He doesn't need his five loaves and two fish. But he includes him anyway. Why? Evidently, the boy was willing to to offer what he had to Jesus. I don't think they coerced him I don't think they knocked him over and stole his food. They were probably asking around. Has anybody got anything to share? Boy raises his hand. I do. Jesus is going to use it. There's I don't I don't want to miss the significance of this because. We see this all throughout the the Gospels where (laughs) Jesus takes time to address people that we don't expect him to address. He takes time to care for people that everyone else just passes over and glosses over. And church, you don't have to be the smartest You don't have to be the richest. You don't have to be the most talented or successful by the world's standards. Jesus doesn't need your abilities. What he wants is your heart. He wants a posture that says, whatever I have, Jesus, it's yours. Use it however you want. He can get something done with that. And before we move on from the boy, I don't want to miss the details here at the end in, in verse 13. So after they've, they, everyone has eaten, eaten their full, their fill, they gather up all the fragments. And what do they have left over? Twelve baskets left. Now, we don't know. We don't, John doesn't tell us in detail. But I'm very certain that that boy went home that night with a lot more food than he came with. But he didn't just go home with food, right? He went home with a story about how he got to be a part of this miraculous work that Jesus did that day. And friends, I want to make the connection to what we just discussed in the previous section. No one ever sacrifices more from Jesus than they receive from him. No one ever, ever, ever sacrifices more for Jesus than they receive from him. Jesus says it himself in Mark chapter 10, verses 29. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has ever left house or brother or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake or for the gospel who will not receive A hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. I wish he hadn't said that part. And in the age to come, eternal life. Friends, if God is calling you to take a step of faith, to step out of yourself into something that might cost you, Something that might require some sacrifice. It's because he wants to give you more of himself. He's inviting you into a deeper experience of fellowship with Christ and with his Holy Spirit. His church, there's nothing that we can or will ever give up or sacrifice in this life that compares to what we get from Christ in return. Let's look finally at the crowd. As I, was <clears throat> As I was reflecting on this part of this story, there was a question that came to mind. I'll ask you the question, see what you think. In, in miraculously feeding this large group of people, was Jesus blessing them or testing them? Or maybe I'll ask it differently. Was Jesus primarily concerned with meeting their physical temporal needs or with revealing something deeper in their hearts. I think the answer is yes. Mark, in his account of the story, tells us that when Jesus looked up at the crowd, he had compassion on them. But not primarily, although I think he had compassion on them because they were physically hungry. But Mark tells us he had compassion on them. Why? Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. See, the crowd, this group of people, thought they knew what they needed. They thought they needed a political leader. They thought they needed a military conqueror who would defeat the Roman Empire, restore their political freedom, take care of their physical needs, protect them, provide for them. And they did need that to a certain degree. But that's not what they ultimately needed. And what I find interesting here is that Jesus actually feeds into their expectations a little bit. This is why I say, I said at the beginning, this is a little bit of a perplexing miracle. Jesus gives them what they think they need. Sometimes God gives us what we think we need to show us that it doesn't truly satisfy. Maybe some of you are, have experienced that. Maybe you're experiencing it right now. There's a real danger for us, church especially living in a time and a place where we have everything that we need and far more. There's a danger for us living and breathing the air of consumerism that dominates our culture. The danger which the Bible speaks to very clearly over and over again, is that we would be deceived into thinking that material blessings and the things of this world, which God has given us to enjoy, will ultimately satisfy us. And when that happens, we have no more need for a Savior who calls us to take up our cross, deny ourselves, and follow him, even if what he offers in return is eternal pleasure forevermore. The crowd wants a Savior who will fill their bellies. Jesus is offering them food that will satisfy their souls, but they will reject it. The question, I think, that this passage lays before us this morning, church, is: are we coming? Have we come to Jesus to fill our bellies or to satisfy our souls? Don't answer too quickly. I think if we're being honest, the answer is almost always a mixture of both. We want the peace and the joy that comes from following Christ, but we would prefer if it came in the form of a full bank account Nice house, trouble-free relationships, comfortable life. And none of those things are wrong. But they are wrong when we put our hope in them. That's why Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6 to charge the wealthy of this present age, which is all of us, not to put their hope In riches, but in God, who richly provides for everything that we need to enjoy. Church, when we truly taste and see the immeasurable worth of Christ... I think if you've ever experienced that, if you've ever had moments where your heart was filled with with Christ and with a desire to follow him, it makes the things of this world seem pale in comparison. It's why Paul can say things like, everything that I counted gain, earthly achievements, physical possessions, Comforts and pleasures, everything is like garbage compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ and being found in Him. It's why the saints in Hebrews chapter 10 can joyfully accept the plundering of their property because they know they had a better hope and an enduring one. Who is their hope? Jesus. Church, I'm not there. If someone comes and plunders my home today, I'm not going to accept it joyfully. But this is what we see time and time again throughout the scriptures, throughout church history. Those who have experienced and tasted the goodness of Christ, they're willing to give it all if it means that they can get more of Jesus. I want more of that in my life, church. I want more of that for you. I want us to be the happiest, most joyful, most generous people in Chester County. Not because we have the most money, not because we have the greatest vacations, not because we have the most comfortable houses, but because we are feasting every day on Jesus. We're being led by his spirit, and we're responding in faith to go beyond ourselves, to step into the unknown, the great adventure of seeing him provide in miraculous ways. We're laying everything that we have at his feet, all of our resources, all of our talents, all of our time, and saying, Jesus, use them. However you want, use them. Church, what could happen? What would happen if we lived like this? We could see this community turned upside down by the gospel. We could see our Christian lives overflowing in the fruit of joy and peace and all the abundance of life that Jesus promises us. We could see the gifts that are represented in this church. And each one of you and all of you sitting downstairs and everyone sitting at home would see the gifts that God has given and deposited in this church unleashed in new and powerful ways. Do you want more, church? I'm not asking you to respond right now. I'm, I'm really asking the question. I'm asking you to consider. Do you want more of Christ? We won't get it if we're content to have our bellies filled. But if you're ready for your soul to feast, the table is set. Ask the band to return. I want to end just by by praying. And I don't mean praying in kind of a formal way or a rote way, because that's what you do when you finish the sermon. I want to take some time to pray, because none of us can experience life in Christ unless God's Spirit draws us and sustains us. This isn't something that we can accomplish on our own. We can't walk out of this room and with five steps for how to experience more life in Christ. This is a work that God has to do in us. Jesus will say that in a few verses later. No one can come to the Father, can come to Jesus unless the Father draws him. And I think I hope that God's spirit is doing different things in the room right now. Some of you have been following Jesus for a long time. Maybe the Spirit is stirring something in you that you want more. You want to live in the way that the Scripture calls us to, in the life of faith that we see played out in the Scriptures, where we are putting ourselves, we're moving beyond our own limitations and seeing God move in incredible, powerful ways. Maybe you want that. So I want to pray for you, and I want you to have the opportunity to pray. Maybe some of you have never come into a relationship with Jesus. And the Father is drawing you this morning. And if that's the case, I want to give you the opportunity to pray and to respond. And I want to pray for you. In the end, we need God, church. If we are really, this is not a kind of of Christian life that we can accomplish on our own. But it's one that is infinitely better than anything that we could accomplish on our own. And I think that anyone who's tasted and seen that Christ is good wants that. We want it more. We want it more. We want to keep growing. We want to go? keep going deeper into Christ. Let's pray and ask God to help us. Spirit of God, we know that your work is to glorify Jesus. You give us life, Spirit, and so we ask that that you would work this morning in each of us to cause the life of Jesus, the life of Christ, the infinite, immeasurable life that we have in Jesus, the abundant life that has been made available to us through the death and resurrection of Jesus, that you would cause that to to increase in our lives. we pray that you would cause faith to increase in our lives or that we would start to reframe the, the situations and circumstances of our lives, not in terms of our own limitations and constraints, but in terms of your infinite power and provision. Father, pray that you would help us to lay everything that we have at your feet. All of our gifts, all of our time, all of our resources, and just say, use me however you want. And then that we would be faithful and that we would have the the grace to, to walk in obedience as you lead us. Father, I pray for those, anyone who hasn't come into a relationship with Christ. If you're drawing them this morning, Lord, I pray that you would give them grace to respond in faith to Jesus, that they would see him as their greatest treasure, the only one who can truly satisfy. Help us, Lord, to walk, to live in a greater experience of soul satisfaction in Jesus so that our lives would overflow with the fruit of that you desire to accomplish in us and through us. Be glorified, Father, in us. In Jesus' name, amen.